0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want
0: to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: Half hour. Welcome to Half Hour with Jeff and
0: Richie. I'm Richie. And I'm Jeff.
1: And today on our show, we have Max Wolf Max is a New York City-born playwright whose work has graced prestigious venues such as the Cherry Lane Theater, the Crane, the Access Theater. He's also made a mark regionally, collaborating with esteemed institutions like IAMA Theater, Pasadena Playhouse, Max's talent has garnered attention in the entertainment industry. He's worked with major names, including FX, Sony Animation, and AMC. And he's currently represented in New York City in the off-broadway space with the play Job. Welcome to Half Hour Podcast, Max.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, Max, it's great to have you on the show. And before we get into your current show, um, we did want to start off by letting you have the floor and kind
2: of tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and how you got started as a playwright. Um, sure. Well, so I grew up in New York City, um, as was stated. Um, and, uh, I hope a lot of them are still around, but there used to be, I grew up in like the heyday of like youth enrichment programs for theater. So like I did, I was in the inaugural class of something called Mind the Gap at New York Theater Workshop that, uh, really informed this play because it was, it paired high school students with senior citizens and we would write plays together. Um, I did Stephen Sondheim's Young Playwrights program. Um, I did the Blank Theater's Young Playwrights Festival in Los Angeles. So there was a lot of uh, encouragement and there were a lot of things to be done. Um, Somewhere in there, on a whim, I applied to the New York Fringe, RIP. Yeah, Um, I
1: know. It's so sad.
2: Really a bummer. Yeah. Um, Like, really a bummer. And I feel like it'll come back one day. Yeah, I have faith. To... It makes too much sense. Right, right. Um, So I was in the New York Fringe um, with uh, this play called Sleepover that was uh, in the words, I think, of uh, this Vulture article where they mentioned it was very naughty. (laughs) Um, It was, uh, I think, something that was slightly illicit coming from a 17-year-old at the time. Um, It garnered some attention largely on the basis of my age not necessarily like rave reviews okay uh that we did you know it I mean it's the fringe there's five shows so, like we weren't getting reviewed in like the times or anything but there were there was media being created that was like including this like daily beast profile that was like this person is so young um you know at the time when you're like a teenager you're like,
1: "Don't, i'm not young Right. Like, i'm right. In right. old right. And,
2: you know now obviously it would be a welcome It would be very welcome if someone wanted to write an article about how young I am. Uh (laughs) But um, I've never told this on a a podcast. Um, This is like usually this is my spiel in general meetings. Um, But uh, I was in fifth period lunch. So like we do the play. It it sort of goes away. And, um, you know, our last couple shows, we had like 200 person wait lists and it was crazy. We were at the Cherry Lane, beautiful, mm-hmm. great, wonderful, and, you know, now over. Uh And during, like, fifth period lunch, I got a call from someone at Esquire magazine asking if I wanted to be in the 80th mm-hmm. anniversary edition. I assumed it was, like, Men of Theater or something,
1: mm-hmm.
2: because why am I going to be in the 80th anniversary <laughs> or of our magazine?
1: Right, right.
2: The idea, it's a very antiquated sort of men's magazine idea. Mm-hmm. It was a picture of one man for every year the magazine had existed. Mm-hmm. And I went down to get my picture taken and Mike Tyson was just, was finishing up. Wow. I was like, what is the deal with this? Uh, it was genuinely kind of a fluke on two counts. One, I had had five performances of a play. The photographer was like, so you're like a Broadway playwright. I was like, no. It was not like, oh, Broadway. I was like, I think also technically no. <laughs> um and i looked at the form when i was like signing off on it and they had my birthday wrong so i'm in that magazine representing a year that i was not born
1: oh
2: um so i was born in 1994 not 1995 and cover of that magazine is like barack obama and i'm in there being like i wrote a play and uh i got signed to UTA from that article. Wow. So wow. that's sort of my professional journey, which, you know, had a good deal of luck involved, as I think most journeys do, but particularly mine in that instance. And then since in the 10 subsequent years, you know, I've I kept writing plays, kept any opportunity to... Do any kind of reading anywhere I tried to I tried to take Um, I did a lot of crazy inadvisable stuff like, you know, paying out of using money from my tech job to fly a bunch of my actor friends to L.A. to do like a two night reading with the Pasadena Playhouse. A lot of inadvisable stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then um, job also crazy set of circumstances had to come together for that to work. And now we're, I'm here talking to you guys.
1: It's amazing. And I think we're going to kind of go into job now for those of you, it's it's playing in Off Broadway downtown in New York city, and there will be spoilers. We're going to talk about some spoiler things. We have a whole episode out about the show already, but we're here talking about Max a little bit about this. And you know, when Jeff and I left this theater, we had so many questions. And I always say, when you leave a play and you're with people and I think something different and the person thinks something different and we're talking about it and and, and we're just talking and talking and talking about it. That is just such a good play. You didn't, you, you didn't beat us over the head with like, this is how it's supposed to be. And, and this is the message. It was like this, that, and the other thing. And we were just so blown away by this piece. And congratulations to you and the success of all of it. The questions we have are, what inspires you to write this? What, what made you even think of putting these two people in a room like this and, and, and starting this dialogue? And then I do want to ask you a little about the ending too and your thoughts on that because the ending is so mind-blowing. So inspiration for this, go. (laughs)
2: I'll I'll give you the annoying artist answer and then I'll give you the real answer. Okay. Okay. (laughs) The annoying answer being like, I really try not to think about inspiration too much just because something will pop in my head and then I just can't get it out. And, you know, I really try to, um, I just try to lead with having fun. Mm Mm-hmm with everything that I do professionally, uh, for better or for <laughs>
1: worse.
2: You know, like this, I was just having, it was just really fun to write and fun to rehearse and um, less fun to watch in previews, and now it's fun again. Wow. Um, uh, but the the tangible answer is twofold. One, I the lead character in the play, well, they're, they're both the lead character, yeah. but the, the female protagonist in the play, as a content moderator, I met someone at a party who had that job. very Wow. Randomly.
1: wow.
2: Um, someone who looked sort of visibly like they were having a hard time. Wow. Um, and it really stuck with me. And I, I had no idea about the world of content moderation. I just found it endlessly fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The uh, the other major source of inspiration was I worked for – when I first moved to L.A., I, in the vein of being an Esquire – representing not my age, uh, (laughs) I accidentally started working in tech for this company called Brud, which built fictional influencers, the most famous of which was called Lil Michaela. (laughs) Um, So, and when I say accidentally, I I started, I got a weird meeting with this company because in another meeting, I mentioned that I had a fake Instagram where I pretended to be an actor because I was bored. Sad. And keep talking to this guy. I did not perceive him to be the CEO of a tech company. Wow. Um, it was only I found out via TechCrunch there was like a leak that they were like, "Oh, this is like a company valued at you know thirty-five million dollars or whatever." And I was like, "That's interesting. I make seven hundred dollars a month." Wow. Um, and you know, then got a proper salary and whatnot. Yeah. But I said, assent- you know it was my job to cosplay as these three different characters. Um, who were all fictional people. Wow. Um, and it was my job to transition the world of those Instagrams from being sort of like art project adjacent. Like it felt like a social experiment mm-hmm. trying to write real lore and try to make it like look like a story. Mm. But the part that really inspired the play was circuitously I had the weird experience of being like a famous woman on the internet. Wow. With a million plus followers. Wow. And, you know, communicating whether I liked it or not with like teenagers in the Philippines and fashion people in Paris who wanted to send me clothes and people who said I was an inspiration and people who told me to kill myself and wow. people who. So, you know, I never. The character in the play is, again, a content moderator, so she's sort of engaging with the worst parts of the Internet. Right. I will, yeah, I was doing that. But, mm-hmm. you know, being able to open my phone at three in the morning and have someone be like, you're beautiful. And then the next message be like, I hate like you're a bitch. Right. Oh, right. Cool. That's right. um, yeah, OK. That's OK. <laughs> uh, I was quoting, So I thought it was fine. No. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. But um, <laughs> um But yeah. yeah, so that 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 there's an element of the play that is more autobiographical than I think people might think in that way.
1: Yeah
0: it's really cool kind of like hearing where some of this is coming from because one of the things that really stood out for me in this play was really how you started with like that big moment and then you kind of like took us into the play and it wasn't something like you were doing in reverse and I kind of wanted to see a little bit more about how you went about crafting that intense and psychologically challenging narrative from the start because you know what I feel like in a lot of plays that we do see it's like the moment and then it's like okay now let's bounce back um you know two weeks earlier or something like that and this was the complete
1: opposite we'll be right back
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help
2: Welcome back. Yeah, I mean I think that I'm always we love we 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 love a twist. I mean it's a corny it's a corny thing but like the movies that you know a lot of movies that I think become sort of cult classic stand the test of time things are like Usual Suspects, yeah. you know American Psycho, Fight Club. These are not even necessarily my favorite movies by any stretch but you know I think narratively those things really stuck with me. I think in Theater terms, Connor McPherson's The Seafarer. Mm, yeah. um, there's this play called Honey Brown Eyes that uh starts with someone holding a gun to someone's head that always really stuck with me. Gloria by Brandon Jacob Jenkins. Like mm-hmm. these moments where you're like, holy shit, you know, mm-hmm. and it really, you know, I was like, I feel the most, those are moments where I really feel sucked into the narrative. I, I was having more success in big quotes, but like more traction in television at the time that job started. And I think I was a healthy, there was a healthy dose of TV development brain in working on the play where when you're crafting a pilot episode, you know, you're trying to get people on board for six seasons or at least, you know, another hour. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot that's said about the sort of playwright to TV pipeline. And we're such allegedly great television writers. And I think there's a little bit that can healthily flow in the other direction that, that um, obviously TV is inextricable from capitalism in a way that theater need not be. But I think there is something for being intensely audience focused and being like, you know, what to put it in tech terms, like user experience, you know, and um I don't not, I have no shade or shots at anyone, but I, I think in theater, sometimes as someone, who, as someone who's been a playwright, who's developed at theaters, you know, it's just, it's a lot of like telling you, you can do whatever you want to do, which is great yeah. in one sense, but then faced with facing down the the barrel, you know, kind of pun and metaphor intended of, of really having to put this up in front of hundreds of people, you start to be like, well, I don't want people to be bored. Um, I think, again, that moment, I can't tell you exactly where the moment of opening the play with the gun came from, save from maybe stealing it from those other plays. <laughs> but I think that it cr- immediately creates really helpful narrative parameters, and it causes problems, but it also makes your development a lot easier from a directing and dramaturgy mm-hmm. standpoint, because you're like, okay, well, we started at that moment, so that's, that's the you know, sort of stealing, that's like, we have to, we have to be surpassing that or like bumping up against it at all times. And if we're too far below it, something's not working. And that's tough. But also in a sense, you know, our director, Michael Hurwitz, and our producer slash dramaturg, Hannah Getz, I'd be like, it's not working. And one of them would be like, well, she just needs to move the bag that has the gun in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you're like, boom,
1: right? There you, go. you know, like,
2: easy, <laughs> you know, in, in a way, like, it's like, she needs to on that line, she needs to block the door. And you're like, right, we're, we're reminded. So I think once we really got, it was there as just sort of a crazy idea. But once we really got into development and rehearsal, the, the three of us, um, could really see how helpful it was.
1: It was totally clear that you all collaborated and that there were design collaboration as well. And when you see this at the, you know, when you get towards the end and, you know, there's a lot, there's horror here. There's also real world issue reflection. There's so much going on. And towards the end, Jeff actually grabbed my knee and started squeezing my knee. And I was like, why is he doing that? And 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 then it took me about three or five seconds behind him to figure out what was going on when she's really yes. exposing him. And so the, the rest of the play are like, oh my, I don't know. I saw, I didn't see it coming from a mile away. So the question I have is with this ending, are we supposed to believe that she knew all along that she was going in there to expose him? Is he never even really admits to it in the play? When the play ends, what happens next? Like, there's all these questions. Do you want the audience to have all these questions? Or did you say, no, this is how you're supposed to think of the ending? Or, or were you open to both?
2: I'm I'm open to whatever. I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's the healthy and beautiful part of doing theater and sort of giving it away. I'll also say, like, night by night... um. It's just what our actors find yeah.
0: when that moment,
2: if I'm trying to do this verbally and not visually, but like if, if Sydney, you know, has the, ha, is holding the gun on, on Peter, like, uh, you know, arms all the way outstretched in like, you know, a good stance. People think one thing, some yeah. nights the gun just comes up to sort of solar plexus level and she's a little shaky and it's like a totally different and both are right, you know, like to, it's a totally different experience. And there is there are definitely audiences who I think feel more united just kind of based on what the actors find. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I listen, I have an answer. Right. I don't, think, I don't think I'm any more of the authority genuinely than anyone else. Right. Um, Sydney has her opinion. Right. I've spoken to her about it. Peter has never spoken to anybody about it. Wow. Um, His logic being like, why, you know, you know, A, you guys don't need to know. I just need to know. Right. But B, and it's a a confluence of something he said and something our director, Michael Hurwitz said that I really like is he was, he's sort of like, what does it matter? Right, And I think something I'm interested in people taking away from the end. And this is sort of the, I felt corny talking about my own metaphor. No, no but, that's okay. Yeah. But I think that, uh, you know, there's something in the end to, to how truth functions on the internet where it's like, people are like, well, did he do these things? Is she right? Is she crazy? It's like, she has a gun. Right? Yeah. You know, it's like, if, if someone had a gun on you and you were like, wait, 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 wait. Like, I'm not like the thing you believe is not true, right? You know, like what does it matter? And I think that you know there were there we've seen a transition over the last however many eight years or however long it's been, you know, since the Trump presidency, where we still have this sort of coastal hand wringing of like, but, but like that's a lie, and yeah, yeah, no one cares, like right, right, right. literally, no, (laughs) it doesn't matter, and so you know the the piece is very firmly a period piece that takes place in January of 2020 yeah. it takes place before this you know almost cosmic magical awful thing that we all experienced mm-hmm. where it's like it doesn't matter Yeah, you know where people it was so much of people on all sides espousing things and you're like look well there's this I don't know what I don't care there's this sickness and that is what is happening and I think that the the thing that Michael Hurwitz, our director says that I really love is in the end, I think the question we're most interested in is it's these two people who, despite whether this is true or not, they really, it's two characters who desperately need each other. Mm -hmm. And I think the question in the end is not to me necessarily though. I mean, it is a question. Does she shoot him? But will these people decide to need each other? That even if, Peter's character is this horrible criminal that she thinks he is. She still needs the help of a very skilled therapist, and even if she is his would-be assassin, who you know hates him and has been tortured by him psychologically, Peter's character's reason to live is is helping at-risk people, right? So, you know, I think it's about what. Real solidarity and coming together will look like in um, America. You know that, like, we're going to have, yeah, we're going to have to be alongside people who we might ideologically really disagree with, right. if we're t- if we're to our if we are to collectively move towards shared and common interests. Um, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think that's, it's that's yeah. a great
1: way to put it. It's so and and it's- and.
0: Well, I was going to say, is it bizarre that I have this whole other narrative that I've created in my, yeah, my, my in my idea of this is I actually don't think they need each other because I think she's a plant in this whole scheme and that she actually knows the whole time and she's tricking him that she he needs to confess to um, the things that he's done. Oh, I love that. And that literally I'm leaving here. I'm like, Richie, what if What if she knows? What if the whole thing is a setup and all of these videos are created to kind of make him think that she actually was crazy in, um, you know, wherever she's working for the famous tech company Uh, and that they planted her there because she goes. But then I'm like, oh, and then she goes and, you know, she tries to hunt everyone down that she finds doing these bad things on the
2: Internet. Anyway, it's that was how, how boring. Would it be if I was like, actually? Jeff, that's wrong. Right,
1: right, right. No, but that's like, why.
2: That's why I'm praising
1: kind of
0: your writing here because I think it is written really well. That you can go off on a tangent and have all of these different ideas because you you wrote it that way. And like I
2: think everyone's gonna have a different feeling on it. You thank know? you. I mean, yeah, that's that's totally. And I really do. You know, it sounds again. It I'm self conscious. It sounds pretentious to be like Wh- whatever anyone thinks is <laughs> right. right. It truly is. I mean. I really don't I th- I think that's what this medium is to me is yeah. you, you have to you have to take yourself out of it and be like I'm not at these shows I don't you know like maybe something happens where you know whatever theory feels like the only logical conclusion that night just because of I mean something like you know we don't have to get into this norms <laughs> too hard but like Something like October seventh, and you know what's happening in Gaza happens, and changes the entire tenor of our play about, uh, you know, viewing things on the internet and and what content we should or shouldn't be looking at. So the world keeps moving, and so I think you one needs to as well. I don't know. I I I don't like to be moralized to, and I don't I don't really like to moralize to people, yeah. and I I also think. I reject the idea, and you guys haven't said this, but a lot of people will be like, well, the ending is ambiguous. I'm like, I don't think it's ambiguous. Like, you would never describe, I think, a real-world situation. I don't know. Like, you would never be like, "Well, this Trump lawsuit, well, you know, it's it's ambiguous. <laughs> and, well, you, you have, it's not clear in the legal. It has not been proven. Right. But, like, we have a very strong opinion. It's, like, very hard to, you know... I don't know. Like aurora borealis, to me is like a, a mb. You know, you're like, what is? I? And <laughs> you're like, right, right. That's something where I think of, and I'm like, I don't know what that might be. <laughs> like most things, people have like a a strong inclination one way or another, and I think this is no different. And, and tell us
1: a little bit about your thoughts on where your play, this play, job fits into the Broadway, Off Broadway, New York City theater space in general. We have so many. Broadway's changed a lot in 20 years. Off-Broadway's even changed. Some of the most groundbreaking, cutting-edge things are coming from off-Broadway. Some transfer to Broadway, some don't. I know there's less and less off-Broadway theaters, too, unfortunately. So where do you feel like this play is fitting right now in the current theater landscape of New York?
0: We'll be right back. Let's jump back into things.
2: I... I had, I was lucky enough to um, have brunch next to, uh, it was at like an event, uh, the one and woman. only event that I've been to. I don't want people to think that I'm out <laughs> here on this mountain. Um But I sat next to someone who is a, an artistic director of one of, of a major off Broadway theater. And he was reflecting something that a lot of my friends feel that I certainly feel is that theater kind of desperately needs to deinstitutionalize. That's and, annoying. That it's not this notion that theater is dying is obviously patently false. Theater is right. one of the oldest art forms. Theater is not going anywhere. We're right, going right. theater in in the nuclear fallout shelter. I think. Yeah. Oh we, yeah. There is this. You know, we the institutionalization of theaters make us feel like we're not all on the same team. And what I mean by that is, you go to these big off Broadway theaters. I don't want to name check any of them because I I love all of them, and I I appreciate what they're up against. But you go to these theaters and they feel like, you know, the fanciest places on Earth, which they are, which doesn't reflect that a lot of them are fighting to make payroll every year and that they are, you know, run on, you know, the, for better or for worse, like, you know, Citibank and Deloitte and, like, Bloomberg needing a tax write-off, and that's the basis of these theaters, and that's out of necessity, not design. This is all a long winded way of saying, like, I think that we're in a really exciting moment for independent theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the success of Oh,
1: right.
2: Success of everything that Jack Sirio is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess Theta Bear is kind of through the brick, but like, you know, animal kingdom and, and his uncle Vanya, um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really excited to see what Ryan Drake and Ryan Dobrin are cooking up at here art center.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, you go to, and again, these people have been, you know, institutionally supported in certain ways, but like you go to under the radar, you know, now that it's not affiliated with um, the public and, you know, you see what, you know, the, the, while you were partying guys are doing, you see what Niall Harris is doing and you're just like, yeah, there's so much beyond these, these like little, seasons and yeah. um you know it, it's really hard not to have a subscriber base that you're selling to immediately but there's also something really exciting about it and i think part of the success of our first run of the play was we were a non production meaning we didn't have to give that much we didn't have to get anyone their money back we just needed to operate and so we could make the ticket prices really cheap yeah. and we could make merch on our own terms really easily and on this new run you know we've had nights where there's like this uh, plant based milk startup called holy milk that like sold hot chocolate and cookies in the lobby which I've never seen at a play <laughs> right we no. have natural wine some nights you know as opposed to just like the crappy you know generic re- you're just being like hey this is like a you paid $57 to be here, you might want to toss a wine um, we've had people host evenings where they're like, hey, we're going to have a post show party that if you buy tickets to the play, we had uh, Dream Baby Press, which um, uh, is this thing that Zach Royf and Matt Starr founded where they do these like goofy, like erotic, silly poetry readings all over the city. So they've done them in magic shops. They've done them in the Sabaros and Penn Station. And then they did them to open for one night of job. Cool. Well, all of, I, I'm I'm giving you a long, rambly answer, but the, there's real joy in not being institutionally bound, and you really it really opens up a lot of possibilities. And I hope that I can continue to. In, I mean, I wouldn't say no to the chance to produce at a nonprofit, but also the thought of someone—if someone came to me tomorrow and was like, "We'll put your play up at blank place in New York." It would be in two and a half, three years. I don't really want to wait that long.
1: Right, right. right.
2: Um, so I'm going to, I, I just think like it's, it's, it's um, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of possibilities out there. And I think that as things feel like they're falling apart, there's a lot of, historically speaking, like that's where innovation comes from. And so I'm really excited about the state of New York theater. Um,
1: totally. And I,
2: I, I don't really understand when people aren't like, I know that like, yeah, but it's like people are again, no shade to anyone, but people will colloquially and freely offer that be like, Oh, this spring on Broadway is going to be a bloodbath. And you're like, if we know that, like, what are we doing? Like, right, you know, Just right. like, why? And so I think that like people, you know, there are not being a million things that people kind of know, aren't going to do well. Like, I think that that's, like, a good, I think that going away is, like, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And I I think taking the health, and then I'll shut up, I promise. Yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> you know, I think that, like, people using Broadway as, like, an indicator of, like, the health of New York theater is also really tough because the budgets are just not comparable at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so different. And theater, I think, is in, like, our mixtape era, to put it in, like, music terms, like, we have to sort of get the new fans in at a lower price point. And then one day, I think there will be a new generation of young people that really views theater as a premium product and is like, yeah, I will pay $150 to see it. But for now, it's like, no, like, there needs to be options where people can pay $35. And right. I feel really uh, excited and privileged to hopefully continue uh, trying to offer that.
1: And And I know we're almost out of time, but I wanted to just do a really quick two-part question one what's next for you what's coming up for you that you're able to say now and also when you talk about all these inspiring future ideas for shows what is something a piece of advice that you could give to a young play right now who's trying to get a show
2: um so in terms of what i'm doing next there's a there's a play that actually predates job that i am cleaning up and trying to catch actors to um i don't know i'll say also like it's it's I've had so much more interest candidly in film and TV than okay. I have in, in any sort of theater capacity. Okay. I I don't you know, um is a chip that I'm gonna wear on my shoulder for yeah. a while and is mm. gonna I think push me towards <laughs> doing more theater stuff. Yep. Um, but also might be sort of emblematic of what's happening in the scene that yep. um you know, not to sound arrogant, but like I just like thought that there Would be more theaters that maybe wanted to talk to me, yeah. Um, yeah. There's Such. been, um, you know, the play is going to get published. Um, there we have some international things moving, cool. it's really exciting. Cool. Um, we just signed the stuff for our first non profit, you know, regional production that will cool. be uh, not in America, okay. Um, which is cool. Um, so just work and I don't know, just like having again, it's really about having fun, yeah. I love yeah, films, I love. I want to do more readings. I just like, there's stuff I want to write. Just cool. have a good time. Um, what I'd say to a young playwright is you just, you just, it's it. I think that all of the best advice is really simple. And what changes is sort of our capacity to hear it. Like work hard and be kind. Like those are, you know, those are profound, but it takes, you're not necessarily in the right place to receive that. So the simple thing that I would say is you just have to do it and, you know, be kind of stupid and don't listen to everyone is going to tell you how being it being hard and it being impossible are always going to make more sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just don't think that that's true. And I also don't think everyone is a unique, gorgeous, perfect little snowflake who has a hit play in them. Right. And but just do it. I don't know, yeah, like right. just <laughs> like shoot for the moon, land amongst the stars. Like I don't know, just like hit up the local coffee bar that no one has ever asked to do a play reading in. And I bet, you know, for 20% of the door, they'll be down. Just do right. it. You no, know, like, you not. don't wait around for, you know, insert, you know, nonprofit, right. To, like let you into their writers group. Cause they're probably not going to, Right, and right. If they do, that's awesome and good for you. And that's great. And they're wonderful people, but they're probably not going to let you in. And, yeah. There's also a lot of respect given, I think, to people who do things their own way and on their own terms. So that's really. what I no, I
1: I love that. that's yeah.
2: and it's the big innovative thinking
0: thing that seems to be lacking sometimes that people just want it handed to yeah. them. So if you think outside the box,
1: right? Know. We we are all out of time, unfortunately. For today. I could sit here for another half an hour and talk to you, but it's yeah. been all wonderful. Folks. We thank you all so much for joining our episode of half hour today. Thank you all so much for listening.
0: Yes, and uh, we hope. You enjoyed our conversation with Max Wolf We will share all information on where you can learn more about Max in the description and where you can get tickets to job.
1: To our listeners, if you have suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Instagram and TikTok at Half Hour Podcast.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today, Max. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: I'm Richie. And I'm Jeff. Saying ta-ta for now. Bye.